0: This is a Rook Media Series, The Contemporary History of Iran, Part 23. Welcome to the Contemporary History of Iran, a series from Rook Media. This is Part 23, The Shah and the Quiet Revolution. I'm Jian Gomeshi. Our aim with this series is to explore the events, personalities, and issues that have shaped modern Iran. We want to do this as much as possible through a non-traditional lens, through snapshots of change and using alternative voices or angles. This series is mostly in English and will feature a new episode posted every Thursday across our Rook Media platforms. We will post subtitled excerpts with Far Navis on our YouTube and Instagram sites. We are coming to you on rookmedia.com. It is there that you can link to all of our platforms and we invite you to check out parts 1 through 22 of this series that are already posted. To become a sponsor or patron of Rook Media, please contact us through our website. All right. Let's get started. Here now is the contemporary history of Iran, part 23. The revolution of 1979 has often been seen in very simple terms as a cultural war that occurred between the modernist Pahlavi state and a fiercely traditional and religious opposition with the clergy winning out. But of course, the story is more nuanced than that. In the decades preceding the Islamic Revolution, different political groups with sharply contrasting agendas embraced the politics of spirituality. While the idea of Zadigi or West-toxification, that being an infatuation and dependence upon the West that leads to everything from moral laxity to greed to social injustice and the devaluation of spirituality and religion, was a major part of the discourse used by ideologues of the revolution like Ali Shariati, it was not a concept that had been entirely disavowed by the Shah himself. In fact, you might say the Pahlavi state engaged in the very anti-modernist discourse that would provide ammunition for its own downfall. So what exactly are the roots of the anti-modernist movement in Iran? How might we assess the winds of the revolution of 1979, far before the late 1970s? And in what way were the Pahlavis complicit in the revolution that dethroned them? My featured guest today has recently published a fascinating book on this very subject in which he argues that it was, in fact, a convergence of anti-modern spiritual and nativist discourse in both the Islamist revolutionary movement and the Pahlavi state that created the conditions for the overthrow of the Shah. Dr. Ali Meersipasi is an Iranian-American sociologist, scholar, political scientist, and author. He is the Albert Gallatin Research Excellence Professor of Middle Eastern and Islamic Studies and Director of the Iranian Studies Initiative at New York University. He's also an affiliated faculty at the NYU Sociology Department in the Faculty of Arts and Science. Dr. Amir Sapasi was born and raised in Iran, received his bachelor's degree in political science from the University of Tehran, his MA in international relations, and his doctorate in sociology from American University. He is the author of several acclaimed books, including Democracy in Modern Iran Islam, Culture and Political Change, Political Islam, Iran and Enlightenment, Philosophies of Hope and Despair, Transnationalism in Iranian Political Thought, The Life and Times of Ahmad Faradid, Iran's Troubled Modernity, Debating Ahmad Faradid's Legacy, and germane to today's discussion his book from 2019 iran's quiet revolution the downfall of the pahlavi state and right now dr ali
1: mirsipasi
0: joins me from new york today hello sir
1: hello mr and and thank you so much for a very generous introduction
0: thank you please call me Gian and i really appreciate you doing this you really have written a fascinating book Uh, Let me start with you and and why you wrote this book. Much of the discourse around the revolution of 79 shines a light on the events of the the 70s and particularly the late 70s that precipitated the return of Khomeini to Iran. What inspired you to focus on the incremental roots of dissent and discontent that would lead to the downfalls of the Pahlavi state looking decades before it?
1: Well, as... You mentioned, I am a sociologist, and in in terms of my scholarly work, I consider myself an intellectual historian of modern Iran. And, of course, what we call the Iranian Revolution of 78-79 was a major event, a major shift in Iranian intellectual discourse. For me, the question was that something must have happened around 60s and 70s, where at the end the revolution happened, that I should be able to, in one way or another, explain this very important, perhaps the last important social revolution of 20th century in the world. It's a major, major event, and it cannot be explained by just simplifying a nation's history into its past. Yeah. Um as much as history and culture and religions are important, these elements were always there. And why is it that this kind of revolution did not happen in early 20th century, but it happened in late 20th century? So uh, some of the books that you mentioned, um, and basically in the past three decades, I've been writing and researching um, and seeking and looking for an answer to to this question. And right. this book is is one of those um, studies. I'm guessing you would also
0: say a, a revolution of the epic nature of the 79 revolution doesn't happen based on one event or, or inflation or a, a crackdown in the streets or something like that. It has to have been brewing for, in what you're arguing, decades.
1: Uh, exactly. And it, there has to be a balance. Actually, after this book, I quoted a book by a colleague at NYU, which is about the revolution, and we engage in a critique of a dominant explanation. It, it was economy, or it was because Shah did not allow our political parties to operate, so on and so forth. Of course, sociologists and political scientists and others have always argued that a, a major, major uh, social events, um, and this is true of every revolution when they happen they happen because it's articulations of many causes and forces Mm. on the one hand on the other hand there has to be a very specific explanation for the event so it cannot be that a revolution happened in China or in Russia or in this case in Iran and we go back and we look at say some people uh, have done this you look at religion, uh, Iranian religions before Islam and after Islam, you connect them, you come up with this idea of Masonism and the fact that um, Iranians, whether secular or religious, they are always looking for certain kind of spiritual ideals, and then that's why they saw Khomeini in the moon, and so, so on and so forth. The explanation cannot be that historical and that general, and therefore, potentially, a revolution can happen all the time. Even in Iran, a revolution like this never happened. Uh, remember that the Constitutional Revolution of 1906 really was a reform. Right, it was it's not really revolution. a revolution
0: in terms of an, uh, an overthrow. It's a, no, a re- so
1: right. what is it about this particular event that one time happened in the history of Iran right. and what was going on there, but also not only what was going on in Iran but what was going on in the world
0: Well, I get the point yes. about the balance I think that, I mean, that, that makes a lot of sense as an explication I, I, while we're at it, uh, just in terms of defining the Um, the grounds here. Let me ask you about the lexicon. Your book actually is called Iran's Quiet Revolution. You use the term quiet revolution to address this um, this growing discontent with Iran's modernization that occurred through the 1960s and the 1970s. Why did you think that quiet revolution is an apt term?
1: That's a great question because this was as I was researching and Thinking about this particular book, I wasn't thinking of, of a quiet revolution. Well, let me step back a little. Um, most of my other books and studies deal with intellectuals or ideas and or movements that were oppositional movements and ideas. With this book, what I knew what I wanted to do was to look at Pahlavi states and its own cultural and intellectual uh, institutions and personalities. But I wasn't thinking of a sort of convergence of interest by both those who wanted to get rid of the Pahlavi state and the Pahlavi states on critique of the West and modernism or modernity in general – and the embrace of some kind of Iranian spiritual tradition.
0: Sure, but the u- the use of the word quiet is interesting to me, because uh, on the one hand, I get it, quiet revolution, meaning maybe it's bubbling beneath the surface, uh, um, we don't see its head until it, it culminates uh, uh, with a crescendo in 1978-79. But on the other hand, anti-modernism... It wasn't that quiet <laughs> through the as as you make the case in your book through everything from literature to film to mm-hmm. to the, the the theocrats to the Shah himself. So so why use the term quiet?
1: That's very interesting. Actually, this book was translated in Iran in Farsi, and they asked me to write an introduction for the Persian edition. And the the publisher asked me to basically the same question that you just asked me: that why quiet revolution? So here are two points that I think influenced me naming this movement as a quiet movement. One is that I want to make sure that there is a contrast between the revolution, which was very apparent and very something that um, everybody noticed. Sure,
0: on the 6 o'clock news, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right.
1: Before, with all demonstrations, and the rituals and personalities, and also after revolution. And secondly, I was obviously amazed that what I call the quiet revolution happened in the most public fashion possible. In other words, when Pahlavi states, uh, and Shah himself, decided in the 60s, basically a shift from what we usually call first Pahlavi ideology or nationalism of sort of very blatant modernist Mm. and secular nationalism that Reza Shah and Pahlavi state advocated and articulated. Um, Whether you were pro-Pahlavi or you opposed Pahlavi, that was what it was. The late Shah, the second Pahlavi, basically uh, began moving towards something that Um, Sometimes Shah himself and other intellectuals around him would call Iranian Islam, sometimes they would call it Iranian or Islamic spiritualism. And the person responsible for really, in a philosophical way, articulating this, and I don't want to get into details of that because it becomes a little too technical, was Henri Corbin, the French mm. philosopher, the French uh, scholars of Islam, who actually coined the term Iranian Islam, which really means something close to what we, uh, we call Erfan in, in Persian. Right. Let me give you a couple of examples. For instance, in 1968, Harvard University Law School were um, awarding the Shah, Muhammad Reza Shah Pahlavi, an honorary degree, and Shah is in Cambridge, Massachusetts, to receive the degree and gives a talk. That's a very clear indication of the shift happening. Shah gives a speech, which has basically two elements, if I want to summarize it quickly. One is a condemnation of Western culture that is corrupt, that is too materialistic, that is too lax on, in terms of, of morality and, um, so on and so forth. And the second one is Basically, he presents himself as a, um, a sort of mystic, a sort of not religious in a Islamic term.
0: A spiritual leader.
1: A spiritual leader whose political message is a, a sort of prophet. He has a prophetic message for the humanity. And in that talk, he actually proposes. and he says that he is going to present this to the UN, of a sort of a crusade for justice and moral well-being of the world that he would like to lead. So this whole anti-Western, anti-secular, anti-materialistic very view of the world is very new as far as the Pahlavi dynasty is concerned, Mm. and was perceived as a shock by some people that Shah is making this kind of argument. Um, I don't want to get into this. I don't well, let me let it- me
0: actually come back to that because I, the, you're getting sure. a little ahead of me here. Because I I do want to ask you specifically about how and when it started, when you start to see that with the Pahlavi regime, etc. Uh, I think we were still talking about why why it's called quiet revolution, but I think I think you've <laughs> answered that. Uh, uh, let me before we actually. Get to the most fascinating element of the anti-modernist movement, as you've articulated in your book, and that—that that is that it's—it's it's not only not opposed by the Pahlavi regime, but in fact enabled by it. Before we get to that, in general, Dr. Sapasi, what sure. were the seeds of the opposition to uh, Qarab Zaghi to to this west toxification in Iran? Where do you see the anti-modern oppositionists first gaining strength? When do we first see
1: this in general? Great question. Um, To say that it's complicated is something that academics say all the time. I don't necessarily want to use that cliche, but it has a longer history than most people may think. However, very specifically to, to respond to your question is that Generally speaking, in modern Iranian history, constitutionalism, which one can articulate as a sort of a modernist enlightenment in the Iranian context, or what Iranians really call hukumat qanun rule of law, mm. was the dominant discourse in Iran from second half of 19th century, certainly until... Uh, 1953 Mm. and I'm really talking about both conservatives and liberals and the left and everything in between Uh, um, and that included the Shia ulama Uh, so that was the dominant discourse.
0: Mm.
1: What happened in post-coup 1953 coup was that the oppositional those who opposed the Pahlavi state uh, felt that the West has betrayed Iran, and constitutionalism doesn't work. Intellectuals, for instance, you mention Ali Shariati, Jalal al Ahmad, but it goes beyond that. These days, Darish um, Mehrjui is on the news because they didn't allow his film to be screened. People like him. When he was young, he went to uh, LSU to study philosophy, and he became a big fan of Heidegger. These yes. are anti-modernist German uh, trends, and came and made all those films that, in a sense, you can say that it was his works were some of the, uh, are among some of the leading anti-modernist work. So the opposition... Begin studying and learning about um, these particular uh, what we call counter enlightenment ideas in the West, and very important intellectuals such as Farid, uh, Shayan. Others went to France. They studied under Henry Corbin, and they came and translated their works, and they published their own workings. All these are all Western inspired anti-modernist writings and ideas that Iranian who were seeking for an alternative to modernist enlightenment find and then the religious leaning folks mm. like Shariati also realized that this is very compatible with their understanding of sha if you were if we
0: were just to stop from a moment and, and as a sidebar if you were to if somebody's listening and wants to know exactly or not, maybe not exactly, but to get a sense of what we're talking about when we talk about anti-modernism in the Iranian context, in the mid-20th century. Um, c- can you summarize it? I mean, obviously, this is something about creating that modernity is creating alienation, undermining spirituality. I mean, h- how would you summarize what the gist of anti-modernism was?
1: Yeah, well, let, let I think if I... Usually, simplifying um, ideas doesn't work, but in this case, it may. Okay, It comes with the idea of returning to ourselves, to our own values. A very important intellectual or political figure who really popularized this anti-modern trend in Iran was uh, somebody who recently died, Ehsan al Naragir wrote a series of books. I just name title of these books, and you and I think it would explain it. Yeah. One is qurbat Qarb," alienation of the West. Is that modernism, materialism, secularism? All of these lead to us Iranians losing our own sense of culture, identity, and really, it comes down to being unauthentic. Mm. This urge for being Iranian or being Muslim or which which in that context means being something spiritual. Mm. We see this in in paintings, Iranian artists, in theater, in music. All everybody now is looking or seeking a true self. People write articles and and books on Mm. what is Ruhe-Irani, what is the spirit of Iran. This is anti-modernism. And modernism is defined as something that is universal. It does not pay enough attention to specific cultures and history. And it basically treats everyone as a number. Yes. It's
0: lack authenticity. I I mean, frankly, anti-modernism, as you've just described it, is... um I, one can understand why it was so appealing to so many. I mean, it's it's, yeah. it's even today, you know, in the West, anything from yoga, to, uh, the interest in yoga, to environmentalism, to, uh, you know, left-wing ideologies against capitalism, whatever, all of those things, you know, are, are have seeds of this look, searching for authenticity, searching for a life that isn't uh, just about uh, uh, greed or, or acquisition or, or, or whatever. Um, The fascinating part of, of of what you end up concentrating on in your book is, is as we've now discussed, and let's get into the meat of it. Is 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 how the Pahlavi regime was not, in fact, ideologically opposed to anti modern intellectuals and oppositionists, but that that there was, as you put it, I want to quote you, this amazing convergence of anti modern ideas, values, and ideologies as produced, embraced, and publicized by the opposition and the secular modern Pahlavi yeah. state. So by the 60s and 70s, you argue that the Pahlavi state pretty much abandons the Mashrutepa project, the, the constitutional revolution, and moves towards appropriating a more nativist discourse. You talked a few m- minutes ago about that that speech in Cambridge in 1968. When do we begin to see this
1: happen with the Pahlavis? So, um, first of all, although the title of my book is Quiet Revolution, I probably, I haven't fully responded to you. This movement, the shift from a mash if want to call it a modernist, um, secular ideology to this, this sort of discourse of authenticity or counter-modernist um, movement, it started much earlier. However... At the same time that the Shah started what is with no call as white revolution, a hmm. series of really in terms of socio-economic reforms were modernist reforms right. of the land reform, gender equalities, um, uh, women's suffrage, yes. even the workers' rights, so on and so forth. So this is happening, and this is something that we all see, and have written about. Yeah. This also leads to expansion of the middle class because this is a time where you know education becomes accessible to everyone all over the country and uh, so on and so forth. And as we know that, there, for instance, the number of Iranians studying in the U.S. among all other nations in the world is number one. What I discuss in this book is that the elite in Iran, the ruling elite, is basically faced with a choice. And Shah decides this is not what he want to do. Shah decides that what he would like to do is to actually to make the state even more centralized. Shah was not always an autocrat. Um, you know, this is another topic for uh, another day to discuss. Mm. But it is only really in these 60s and certainly 71, 72, the, the Rastakhiz party and everything that he really makes Iran as a one-man rule country. And And he and others around him conclude that the way they can achieve this is by reconfiguring the idea of Iranian nationalism, which was, again, whether you want to call it Mashrute Project or Reza Shah nationalism, was a broader modernist, universalist idea into something that is more meaningful for the middle class. And middle class always has these tendencies, and you mentioned this too, in the West we have them. You know, some people call it call it New Ageism, whatever you want to call it. There's some kind of this appeal of of spirituality, yes. and of course, then if I want to be be more specific, the Shah's wife, Shahbanu Farah, was always very much attracted to this sort of ideas when he was um, was in Europe, but also in Iran and people around. Farah Pahlavi, people are on Ashraf Pahlavi. People may be very surprised that Ashraf Pahlavi published a journal. This journal the became barnyard. the main. Yeah.
0: Boneyards, yes. let, let, let me get to that, actually. Let me just hold you here for a second, because I want to ask you about that sure. in a few different ways. But sure. before we get to why, why the Pahlavis were engaging in the in employing anti-modern discourse, uh, whether it was earnestly or not, you've just made the case that it's in the 60s and 70s that the Shah moves towards a more autocratic form of ruling, drifting towards a one-man state, etc. When do we actually see him beginning to use the language of garbzadegi, the, the language of Westoxification, the, the language of uh, uh, cultural imperialism? Uh, for lack of a better word, if you know what
1: I mean. Yeah. Well, there are two stages. The first stage is more of culture. I think that starts at the same time that the land reform and what we usually refer to and the white revolution happened, Mm. right? is a 62-63. For instance, um, Shah himself, um, his wife, and state institutions, invested quite a lot in in Iranian cinema and in other cultural and artistic uh, institutions. And they advocated and they invested on creating authentic Iranian cultural products. Mm. But my argument is that in most of the 60s, that remained within the culture on the cultural, and it was a more positive shift mm. into paying more attention to Iranian, past Iranian traditions. With the real increase in oil revenue, and I would say that if I, since you're asking me, I have to come up with a particular date, I would say seventy-two, seventy-three. 73 mm. That we see, first of all, Politically speaking, in addition to being to embracing Arab Zadeghi, Shah makes a series of speech and um, political speech criticizing um, the imperialistic nature of the West. In fact, one can see elements of I don't want to say it, it was a totally anti-American elements of anti-Americanism. Um, Hushang Nahavandi, who was his minister, talks about the fact that he noticed that Shah is more hostile toward Israel. And he fe- he also feels that this, ha- this, uh, this starts happening in 72. He provided Iranian military to Egypt in, in the war against Israel. So he did it. We see this. Of course, um, a little later in his last book before he left Iran, um, oh, we'll get to that.
0: That's a, that's a yeah. fascinating chapter. In he book. also <laughs> yeah.
1: obviously yeah. discussed this. But yeah. I would say that in a blatant way that he embraced Qarm is 72-73.
0: And I'm going to ask you this question now. This is in in a number of different ways because I know it's. Uh, by the way, I know there's no way to get a simple answer out of you. You're too much of an academic. Th- thank God we're not CNN. You, they need you. You need an answer in 20 seconds. You know, <laughs> we've got all the time in the world. So I, I I appreciate that you're giving us nuance, which is actually the uh, underpinning of your book. It's a nuanced way of looking at at uh, how the revolution came about, as opposed to simple answers. Why? Let me ask a simple question, however. And I, as I say, I'll ask it in a few different ways uh, coming up. But why would so? Here, I mean, I guess this is the twenty million dollar question. Why would the Pahlavis employ anti-modern discourse while they are concurrently working towards the nation's secularization and and modernization?
1: Okay, but let let me try to give a more direct, straightforward answer to you. As a sociologist, my analysis now is that the Shah, the Pahlavi state, was faced with a choice of either democratizing and letting the middle class, huge millions of people who were product of Pahlavi modernization, to participate and open up the country, or to choose a model that other countries have also used. And that is that modernization without modernity. To be brief, I give you two cases, more or less at the same time. One is Saudi Arabia. People have written books on this, that Saudi Arabia's socioeconomic um, projects and policies are very modern. They are into modernization, even very similar to what Shah was doing, but they call it modernization without modernity, Hmm. right? They have these alliances with Sunni, Muftis, and and Ulama, and uh, in terms of their attitude toward gender and cultures, they follow Islam, as as they say, right? Because they didn't want to open up the country. At the same time, actually, in the 70s, this also happened in Egypt under Anwar Sadat, this return to the village, Mm. what is authentic Egypt and Egyptians. And in fact, Sadat was killed by somebody who who he tried to imitate. So this is not necessarily unique to Iran. And then there are cases that were more successful, like South Korea, some of the Latin American countries, where they open up. Uh, So it's a sociological issue. It's Mm. not that Mm. Shah just was bored and came up with this idea. When modern societies develop, at some point you have to either invite everybody sort of to participate in their own affairs, or you have to engage in some kind of a project that is, is, from my perspective, close to fascism, yeah. um, which means that you... Um, you privilege certain cultural ideas and hope that you can mobilize everybody in the nation around those ideas. Um, that that you know the, the the right wing in in the West sometimes try to do
0: that. Right, right, right. Yeah, you know, uh, Doctor Mirza Pasi, you 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 say the path in terms of bringing on the revolution eventually. You say the Pathlabi state's embrace of anti modern discourse performs two critical functions, at least this is what I identified in your book. Uh, let me take them one at a time. If you said, first, it undermines the Shaw's uh, autocratic, let's call it modernization project, uh, and fosters resistance to Western cultural influence. Now, um, when you say fosters resistance, it's interesting to me, because that that resistance I'm imagining would naturally be there from traditionalists or or... The clergy say, how, how do you believe the Shah actually fostered resistance to Western cultural influence?
1: Well, I can give you an example. We know um, mm. some very important people who occupied very high position in, in Shah's government, mm. right? Including certain generals. They were loyal to Shah, not that they were not loyal to Shah, okay. but the fact that Shah and cultural institutions that were part of the government were producing this carzadeg, this anti Western, anti modern literature, uh, they also subscribe to it. And then as revolution happens, this is the example I wanna give you um who was the chief of staff, the, the most important military person during the revolution, uh, later wrote his memo of what happened in the revolution, and he said that there was a general, I, I don't remember this general's name, but it was a major, major uh, military uh, leader who um, one day, this is during revolution, came and submitted his resignation. And I said, General, whatever his name was, that this is a very important period. There is um, chaos all over in the country, and this is not the time for you to resign. And Karabaghi said that the uh, the general said, "Oh, I know. I, I don't feel good, but it's I I am facing with a moral dilemma, and that's why I am resigning." And Karabaghi asked him, what, "What is the moral dilemma?" He said, "You know, I come here and I work in the chief of a staff building, whatever it it is, during the day. Then at five o'clock, I go home." change my uniform and go and demonstrate against the government. (laughs) And I feel that I cannot continue this. There are hundreds of people like this that one can mention. People we know, actually, who participated in the the revolution because, and, and they started by believing Shah, by believing um, people like Esan al-Naragi, like Sayyid Hussein and nasr They were very eminent people around Shah.
0: But are you saying who, that if the Shah hadn't embraced anti-modernist discourse, they wouldn't be out there demonstrating? I mean, is that part of what you're,
1: where you're no, going with that? No, but what, what I'm saying is that the situation in Iran could have been like Turkey, right? So in Turkey, Turkey, there is this anti-Western, anti-modern, perhaps majority in, in Turkey. But there is about, it's very very hard to come up with, a, with with a hard number, but between 20 to 35% of people who believe in the modernist ideology of modern Turkey. And they are a, a very important force. In Iran, we did not have this. Remember that the shah 's regime basically collapsed if you there is a very important project called Harvard uh, Oral History of Iran, yeah. which is basically interview with all all the most important um, high ranking officials of the Shah government yes and you cannot find a single person, and these are generals, these are prime ministers and former prime ministers, ministers, whatever. They are all critical of Shah and Shah's regime. They are the regime and they are critical. There was nothing positive for them to embrace. Hmm. This was not the case during Reza Shah. Whether we we are pro-Reza Shah or anti-Reza Shah, there was an ideology that some people embraced and articulated and they identified themselves with.
0: But it's ironic because uh, let me bring in the second of the critical functions that you say um, uh, emerge from the path of East States embrace of anti-modern discourse. The other critical function is you point to this embrace of anti-modern ideas. I, I want to I quote you. Uh, say You say provided a powerful sense of national solidarity invoking Iranian and Islamic past traditions and identity as an alternative to Western values. Now, you see this. This to me, again, setting aside whether the Shah and Shah Bonu were earnest in their you know, anti-modernism or not, this to me seems the reason for the political gamble. Okay, this, this unites the country, national solidarity, and then they'll have my back. I mean, would that solidarity not actually strengthen the Pahlavi monarchy to reign absolutely? Wouldn't that be the yeah, whole point?
1: well, potentially. That's why I think in the book several times, I describe this whole shift as a high-stake gamble. In other words, I'm not saying that what happened, what Shah did, would have failed no matter what. It's a high-stake gamble, right? My analysis then, as a sociologist, is that Shah was naive. When I say Shah, I I really mean him and his advisors and people around him. They were sociologically naive right not as sophisticated as say Saudi royal family is yes. that to to succeed they had to also create an alliances that for instance some religious leaders but they alienated them even more right they embraced Islam <laughs> or some version of Islam but the behavior toward the the ulama, as a, a structure, alienated them even more, mm. right? Or they did not necessarily. Um, By the way, uh, alienating
0: the, them but not crushing them, importantly, right?
1: Well, yeah, exactly. But but the, or let me again. This is another time I can be simple, and, and be more, <laughs> okay. my statement would be meaningful, that didn't cultivate a relationship. Ah. Right? For instance, we now know some of the Ayatollahs and others who were not necessarily happy with Khomeini, and they actually approached Shah a little before everything fell apart. At least, this is their words, that Shah was so arrogant and so... Uh, detached from reality that um, they did not even want to talk to them, right? So, no, it potentially they could have. I can give you an example of what is going now, right? Governments, when they are in trouble, they always try to manipulate and to co-opt certain Popular ideas. I have noticed in the past couple of years that Islamic Republic leaders are increasingly, is increasingly using Iran as opposed to Islam, hmm. and that, because nationalism has become such a powerful thing. But that's also a gamble in itself, right? You cannot do that. But all your pol- if you all your policies are against the national interest of Iran and privileges, say she's.
0: But it's so this sociological naivete, as you put it, is so startling at times. I mean, obviously, hindsight is twenty twenty. It's all in retrospect, you know. Yeah. Who, but it's so and, and, and confused startling and confused because on the one hand there's the there's the crackdown on some dissent there's Savok etc but on the other hand there's this journal that you mentioned earlier I wanted to bring it yeah. back Bon Yod, mon- Monthly this is a Pahlavi sponsored journal of the time that yeah. basically is engaging in you know um, anti monarch- uh, anti-modernist although anti-monarchist to a certain extent anti-modernist yeah. discourse that really is playing against the Pahlavis, yet sponsored by them. Can you speak about this, this Bonyad monthly?
1: <laughs> yes, again, the, the this journal called Bonyad, because it was funded and sponsored by Bonyad Ashraf Pahlavi. Prince Ashraf, sister of Shah, who actually was a pretty political savvy person. I have studied this. The journal was published for two years, Um, I was at the University of Tehran when this uh, journal was published and was known as the most important intellectual journal uh, published by the government. So it was a very important uh, intellectual publication. I surveyed the journal and uh, about 80% of the articles or reports and translations in these journals are in a radical way, critical of the West and modern ideas and advocate for some kind of Islam. <laughs> and also <laughs> praise people like Al Ahmad, someone like Ahmad Fardid um, has a big role in this journal, and uh, Kurban, all of these folks, and there are pieces in this journal that even goes further, more radical than in being anti modernism. It criticizes life in the cities, having cars instead of people riding on horses and donkeys. Right. In a such a, um, I have to say, creative, spiritual way it basically calls for going back to the medieval period <laughs> so it, it does it calls for um even getting rid of technology <laughs> and the cities and this is what i mean it undermines the capitalist state too in other words how could you make a case for progress if you're anti cities
0: right i mean the all of this stuff is directly in contradiction to um, the tenets of the white revolution right of the of the of uh, ostensibly what the the shah was standing for that's why it's so co- it's so confusing and it's so damning um in terms of the the Pahlavi engagement in that kind of discourse do, let me ask you this i mean do you think in terms of the the notion of this being a political gamble um Obviously, by the end, it's a gamble that they lose. Do do you think it worked for a while? I mean, through much of the 60s and 70s, for example, how successful... Was the if we look at this anti-modern yeah. ideologies yeah. as a way, for example, of disparaging the secular left or the the liberal national forces, right, nationalist forces? Yes. H- how successful was
1: that? Yeah, I have to say that I really thank you for asking these questions because nobody has ever asked this question, and um, I have always been waiting for, oh, uh, to, you. To, to to say something about this because this is very important and it becomes. Even the whole issue becomes more complicated. I believe, actually, the Pahlavi state was successful in co-opting or bringing in a rather, I I don't want to say large in terms of numbers, they were not hundreds of thousands, but the educated elite within these institutions. For instance, Kanun, Kanun, the, the uh, cultural organization, the, the, the school. They, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, a number of pretty big national cultural institutions uh, were able to recruit and attract oppositional writers and artists and just, you know, university educated folks who necessarily did not care for Pahlavi State or maybe they were, they opposed it. But it provided the space for for them. Mm. Um, But because politically, the regime became more oppressive, this was the only space available to them. So in that context, they were very successful. This was not the case in earlier time. Even in the 60s, we didn't have this. On the other hand, it Basically, left the oppositional space to the Shia ulama and religious act- activists who they had their own space. Hossein Yershad was there, mosques were there, other, you know, reading group, religious reading groups were there. And in some respect, it pacified the left, and there was less competition for the, for the religious opposition. The Shah basically had no plan on how, what to do with those who were religiously motivated and involved in politics.
0: but can I I mean can I even extend that to say go even further to say that there didn't appear to be a cultural plan in general <laughs> by, by the by, by the I mean there's all, there's a lot of great ideas, but in terms of some sort of united unified cultural plan, There really is there one? I mean, uh, under the Pahlavi regime, by by the by the mid to late seventies.
1: No, well, first of all, we are probably running out of time. It it takes a a long, much longer time to go on sort of genealogy of this whole thing. Was that first of all this whole idea of Iranian Islam spirituality? kind of politics that Shah and Farah and, and Pahlavi Kord was interested in. Basically, they were products of either European intellectuals or Iranian intellectuals who were close to to Shah, but they spent all of their life in the West. For instance, Seyed Hossein Anas, a very important High-ranking official of the government who was extremely important in articulating this idea left Iran, I believe, after fourth grade, um, and studied hmm. basically this. The, uh, Dr. Nasser studied um, in uh, in a very elite um, elementary school in the U.S. and then graduated from MIT and Harvard and become became an Islamist. Or Darush the same. Or Ehsan naraghi you know, was in Iran until he got his, his diploma, but he lived most of his life in the West. So their attitude or their plan was not to come and create an authentic, um, sort of Iranian or Islamic-based um, discourse. But this was this was their thinking before they came to Iran. This is how the West see Iran. And so you can't make a plan out of this. Hmm. That's why when, when, when I said they are socio- they were sociologically uh, naive, this is what I'm referring to. Yeah. If you want to connect, um, if we say if we go to a city or a, a, a different country and you want to connect with that culture, you connect with institutions or people. Not your own perception of who they are.
0: Well, I mean, look—you're quite right that I, 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 can't keep you forever, and I've got a two or three concluding questions. You've been very gracious with your time. Before I get to those questions, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about film, because you, you, you devote a fair bit of your book in uh, uh, to films of the '60s and '70s, and in, in particular to Iranian New Wave cinema and how popular filmmakers. This is as as a cultural example of what was happening. How popular filmmakers of the time were playing a big role in fomenting anti-modernist. Ideas. Tell us about the impact of a film like "Parastuhab Elane Bazmi Yeah.
1: Well, first, the uh, the director and the main actor of this movie, Majid Mohseni. So he here is a man who studied in a rather sophisticated theater um, institution in Tehran. This is a guy who has never been more or less outside of Tehran. He directed and played in a series of movies, and some of them became national phenomena in Iran. All of these movies, these are what I call in the book, um, sort of pastoral um, critique of modernity. All of these movies celebrate simple, authentic life, in villages. Right. And they all show the cities, particularly Tehran, as center of corruption, decline of humanity, and something that has no connection to Iranian or Islamic values and morality. And, and they, they do it in a horrible way. In other words, there is no single person in Tehran who is like a even regular human being. He produces basically a genre of movies. And by the way, the fil- other-
0: the filmmaker doesn't live in a village, right?
1: No, has never lived in a village. <laughs> the filmmaker <laughs> right. was a theater actor, worked with um, some of the prestigious um, theater group, have traveled all over the world. I have to give you this this particular um uh, event that he had with Shah and Farah to to make my point yes, is that yes. when they screened the movie in front of the uh, the Shah, Shah was so impressed and moved that he wrote an executive order and uh, to the government and said this movie should be shown everywhere in Iran, and uh, Agha Mohseni uh, should be exempt from paying any taxes. Wow. When Farah Pahlavi the Queen Pahlavi see this, she cries. Uh, there is a picture that she's crying. And these are people, you know, for a Pahlavi was an educated part, also part of the elite. These are people who don't know life in a village. Right. right? So they have this portrayal of village that everybody is authentic, everybody does the right things, if it wasn't for these horrible people in the cities, life would be so nice. And also, uh, of course, always the Europe, uh, the West. And of West is something that Iranian cannot even tolerate right. or have right. any connections with. And this is basically, bec- this This was the main um, theme of the these movies that, and many of them uh, stay cultural institutions uh, invested in these movies.
0: Let, let, let me read you a quote from your book that I that really I find quite powerful. You're, quote, uh, you're quoting somebody or say this is a quotation from somebody, not you. I'm not going to say who it is first. Let me read the quote. Our fundamental aim in building Iran's society of today and tomorrow is to promulgate and fortify as much as possible the true meaning of Islam, in our okay. society, so that the society of the great civilization will be will be on truly blessed with faith, purity, virtue, and maximum spirituality. That is, of course, actually a quote from the Shah in <laughs> 1977. And I think if you read that out to many Iranians today, I mean perhaps leaving out the reference to his book title, The The Great Civilization, they would not guess this to be the case. That That's this, would, this was the Shah. What, what do you think this quote and his book uh, from 1977, of course, was six months before the revolution, a year before the revolution, toward the great civilization, what do you think this tells us?
1: This obviously tells us how out of touch he was with what was happening. When I read this book, I, I read this book a little before I started uh, working on, on this book, so I read it many years later. I could not believe, I was in Iran before and during revolution, that with this really massive religious opposition against him, I was thinking, if that is true, you would either reach out to Muslim Iranians <laughs> Or, you, if you are justices, you you are using Islam as instrument of power, you would think twice, and you use something else. It's totally, it's something, it's surreal. Mm. It's totally surreal. We also know that it's not that he lived an Islamic life, or he believed in what he was saying. He was convinced by some that these abstract, spiritual Iranian Islam, is powerful and he can mobilize people. He he connected with some intellectuals, but not with regular folks because for regular folks, your action matters, right? You can't have in Jashn-e Shiraz, the art festival in Shiraz, naked people performing. <laughs> Right, And then when it comes to music, then you have Erfani music playing. So it was surreal. It is one way of looking at why the, the revolution that happened happened.
0: Well, it, it's also, and I, you know, one has to be careful not to be too reductive in saying something like this. But the argument has certainly been made on this show by people before that, that he wasn't good enough at being an autocrat. You know, like like his dad was. I mean that 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 there was a that that this could have been avoided with the opposite tact of of crushing the opposition um, you know more um, in a more forthright manner rather than trying to um, uh, adopt appropriate uh, co-opt the ideas etc. I mean I, again that I know it's reductive, but it seems kind of uh, as you, when you say surreal it's like uh, yeah, it's kind of dude, you're not gonna win those folks over at this point with this book are you know so uh, what's going on right?
1: Yeah, but now the reality was that, um, as a sociologist, I can say that, and I believe that many other sociologists have argued, is that the Pahlavi state, by the time of revolution, certainly in the 70s, lacked any viable social base, right? Any government whether autocracies or democracies whatever the form of government is that they rely on brutal force police army they rely on on money and funding and corruption but they more or less have to rely on certain social forces social groups that identify their own Existence with the regime mm. and Pahlavi regime early on did have that, but the second Pahlavi, certainly um, in the 70s, was totally devoid of that. I, I the example I'm saying, I'm not just exaggerating this. I just was shocked to see that these former prime ministers and generals and very, very close people of Shah, they are all saying that everything was bad during the Shah. I didn't have any uh, any role in this. I always told people that what we are doing is not um, appropriate, but I had no power. And everybody repeats this. It's like a script that somebody has written and they're all reading from. Mm. Which means that nobody identified themselves. These are most high-ranking officials with the government.
0: Can I ask you a f- final Couple of questions, uh, and again, I thank you for your all your time. and And these are these are sort of big picture questions that I know there's no exact science to. But given that your book is called Iran's Quiet Revolution: The Downfall of the Pahlavi State, you're you're drawing a connection between the that uh, the the growth of anti-modernist uh, thought that the that the Pahlavis embraced and the downfall of of their uh, state. No. Do, would you go so far as to say, Dr. Mirza that the revolution would not have come to pass if the Shah had not embraced an opposition to Qabzadaghi and, and ideas about the yeah. West?
1: Well, I'm, I'm glad that you asked this question because, no, that's not my argument. Um, I started this conversation by saying that I'm an intellectual historian. Um, my interest is just as an intellectual historian. In other words, I am not covering other issues. Um, No, I don't think that a major social event in a a history of any country happens just because of certain ideas. Um, I think uh, what we call material infrastructure of the society is also very important. I'm not engaging in that kind of discussion in uh, in this book. I'm not saying this caused the revolution or um, I'm not a sort of intellectual determinist. Gotcha, now, gotcha. I'm just saying that Shah lost the battle at the ideological level this way. That engaged in a high stake gamble and lost it mm. i'm not even saying that he this you know he was condemned and uh, and, and, and 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 there is it was predetermined that he would uh, lose it uh, but i am not in no way uh, arguing here that revolution happened because of this no
0: and finally where do you where do you believe the um the the, the residue of the quiet revolution is today. Uh, h- how do you believe the specter of Westoxification continues to be used today, perhaps?
1: Oh, well, um, all of these are, are, of course, very complex. I don't want to necessarily give you a reductionist um, response to that, but I believe that. There is a continuity in a way that both it seems that the government of Iran and those who oppose or do not like the government still believe in what I would call Iranian exceptionalism. Mm. That whatever happens or what is happening for the government, is happening because Iranian is so unique and very very different from every other nation. And I'm troubled by that, because that's, in a way, the sort of finding, the the foundation of this West-toxification. But there is also convergence of that, that I think we, we see, is that the Islamic Republic is losing their ideological legitimacy of uh portraying ruling a nation but saying that our goal is islam which really has no border so they are increasingly embracing n- nationalism and the opposition it seems that the main opposition at least uh in terms of ideas is, is a nationalist is nationalist right which is undermining itself because iran is Certainly, when it comes to ethnicity, it's a very multi-ethnic place that needs a different kind of way of seeing Iran. My last book that I published a couple of months ago is called Discovery of Iran. Mm. And in that book, I'm trying to say that we have to begin thinking of Iran not as an exceptional case, but as a more cosmopolitan case. Uh, This is what intellectuals of Iran, between the two wars, were thinking. And um, this whole discourse of Qar unfortunately, basically corrupted it. And so I don't know if I'm responding to you or not, but I think that a sort of different version of this this toxification discourse, Iranian exceptionalism, is still really, um, is the current trend.
0: Dr. Ali Mirzapoursi, it's been a um, it's been a great pleasure. It, it is a, a fascinating book, uh, and it has been a, a very enjoyable and educational uh, uh, chat for me. I thank you so much. I hope you'll come back and and uh, discuss some of your other books. Uh, but I thank you for the time you've given us today.
1: Uh thank you so much. This I I really enjoyed the discussion and 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 very very. Um, interesting um, questions that you raise and um, and I mm-hmm. hope that we, we can reconnect in the future.
0: Thank you so much. Merci. Khudafis. Khudafis. Dr. Ali Mirsapasi, an Iranian-American sociologist, scholar, political scientist, and author. His latest book just released is called The Discovery of Iran, Taqi Arani, a Radical Cosmopolitan. Dr. Ali Mirsapasi joined us from New York City today. This is full time for the Rook Media series, The Contemporary History of Iran, Part 23. Please check out our regular editions of Rook and all things related at rookmedia.com. That is our website, rookmedia.com. Thanks to the amazing team who make Rook Media happen, talented Anahita, super Patty Saw, Ponta the Artist, Savi Roham Mahaime the fabulous Keon, Captain Reza and Groovy Shia, thank you to all of you out there for supporting us and sharing our content. Please subscribe if you've not done so already. You can find me on Instagram at Gian Gomeshi Mizunbashi.